What a way to begin year 2020. Last couple of days, Pastor Craig came and he impacted our congregation. Personally, so challenged and blessed. And not only I, but many of our congregation get really touched by his message. And so grateful that he can uh, speak for us. Uh, this is in the first Sunday of 2020. So ready to receive? The word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's welcome uh, Pastor Fred. Thank you. All right. I don't do well standing behind this thing, so he's going to get me a handheld one so, Number one. so one. I can uh, walk around a little bit. I'm something to die. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, we've been talking all week about blessing. And I want to continue talking about blessing. How many were here like on Friday night or Saturday? Yeah, a whole bunch of people. Okay, good. Uh, <clears throat> this is one of the most powerful, powerful topics that I know of in the Bible. And it's something that is absolutely neglected in our culture. Like people just don't get it in our culture. And it's not something that's normal to us. So it's something that we need to completely relearn again to understand what is it? What is the power of it? So I tied it uh, in this message to Matthew 28, verse 19, which we call the Great Commission. And uh, everybody knows that. Jesus said it, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What did he do with the authority that, he, that was given to him? Did he take it to heaven with him? The answer is no, of course not. He gave it back to us, gave us authority on this earth. And he said, go into all the world and disciple. And the word that God quickened to me in uh, just uh, the last year or so was the word nations. Disciple nations. And I never saw that before. I, I thought what it always said was sort of like disciple people or disciple individuals or, you know, something like that. But it doesn't say that. It says disciple nations. I thought, well, what does that mean? How do you disciple a nation? Most people are not thinking about how to disciple a nation. I mean, if you guys, have you been thinking about that? How do I disciple a nation? Now, most people are thinking about, you know, how can I win some people to Jesus? Well, that's a good thing. We need to win some people to Jesus, obviously. But uh, it's interesting, just people who are Christians don't change a nation. Has anybody figured that out? I mean, like, have you ever been to nations? I mean, I, can, I could name a few of them. Uh, Nigeria, for example, would be one where there's a huge predominance of Christians, one of the most corrupt nations on planet Earth. Guatemala is another nation like that. Huge predominance of Christians. I mean, it has, Guatemala has changed to be like 40, 45% born-again evangelical Christians, and it has become one of the most corrupt nations on planet Earth. Uh, I mean, last time I was in Guatemala, pastor of a large church told me this story. He said, you know, there was a guy that was leading worship. His name was Brother Rolando. He said, two weeks ago, Brother Rolando was in a bank, and he was making a deposit of some money. Five armed masked men came into the bank, you know, shooting and yelling to everybody, get out on the floor, get out on the floor. And Brother Rolando was just sort of frozen, you know, with fear, like, whoa. Well, one of the masked men that was near him actually leaned over and said, Brother Rolando, Please get on the floor. And he realizes somebody who attends the church. 
I don't know if he told him to remember the tithe, you know, after he robbed the bank or what. But, but I mean, so the point is, Christians in and of themselves don't disciple a nation. You can have a large preponderance of Christians and not change a nation. You got to change the hearts of people. You're going to have to change the spheres of influence in society. So how do you change the spheres of influence in society? I, I mean, you know, have you guys heard of the, the seven mountains idea, the seven spheres of influence, that they're basically seven key spheres, and whoever controls those spheres controls an entire nation. So there are things like government, education, business, arts and entertainment, media, church, and family. And whoever, you know, how many know it's only a very small percentage of people that control the government? It's only a small percentage of people that control the films that we see, the arts and entertainment, uh, the media, the stuff that goes out, you know, over the television is a very tiny percentage of people. And it's just like uh, in, in an airplane, the destiny of that airplane, an airplane flying in the sky, the destiny of a passenger airliner is controlled by two people, the guy sitting in the cockpit. It does not really matter what everybody else in the back thinks. I mean, you could stand up and lobby uh, the, the passengers in the airplane and say, you know, I don't think this airplane should go to New York today. Let's take the airplane to Chicago instead. You can get 350 people in that airplane to agree with you. It is not going to change the destination because the two guys sitting up front are going to control where it goes. And that is exactly the same with media. With uh, You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you think ought to be promoted in the school systems of the United States. The people that control the education system determine that. Uh, the same thing with movies. It doesn't matter if a gazillion Christians rise up and say, you know, we want this kind of movie. Who controls it are the people that make the films, the script writers, you know, the producers, those kind of people. And uh, so how do you disciple a nation? You're going to have to disciple a nation by having godly people who love the Lord Jesus Christ become those influencers, become the key influencers. And... Uh, when I look at who's discipling nations, I mean, what is a discipled nation? I would say that is a nation where the vast majority of those seven spheres of influence are controlled by Christians. And it's founded on the Bible. So, for example, the education system would be founded on biblical principles and managed by godly people. Uh, the business systems would be founded on biblical principles and managed by godly people. The films that come out would be managed by godly people and promote godly Christian values. So what nation is there where you would say that nation is discipled? That's true. Those spheres of influence are governed and managed by people who love Jesus and the gospel has influenced all areas of, of society. What nation is that? I don't think it's the United States. Maybe it was 100 years ago, but not today. How about... South Korea? Is that a Christian nation? Not really. What nation would you say is discipled? You know what? I can't think of one. Not one nation. We could say that nation has those spheres of influence governed by Christians. 
So who's doing a good job discipling nations? Sad to say, you know who it is? Islam. Can you think of any nations where the family structure, the social structure, the education system, the government system, the interest charged by banks is all governed by Islamic law, all rooted in the Quran, all governed by people who are, who are committed to Islam. Can you think of any nations like that? And probably right now there's like seven or eight that come, come to your mind. As a matter of fact, some nations actually are called the Islamic Republic of such and such. So what are these guys doing? They're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And here's an interesting thing. You know what their strategy is? They don't have too many mosque planting conferences. They don't. They're not interested in planting mosques here and there. You know what they're doing? Taking over the whole culture. The whole culture. They don't want to plant a few mosques and win a few people to Islam. What they want to do, take over the entire nation. How are they doing that? What is their strategy? Real simple. They understand two things that a lot of Christians don't understand these days. Number one, they understand Genesis 1.28, which is the first command in the Bible for all humanity. It says you're supposed to do two things. It says you're supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Well, Muslim people get that. And then Genesis 2.24 says, I mean, very early scripture again, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. They're doing two things that are very simple, getting married and having kids. But then there's a third component to it. They are successfully transmitting vision, value, and missions from one generation to the next. Their kids are committed to their culture. Their kids are committed to their family. Their kids are committed to, to their religious beliefs and their way of life. And there are people willing to die for it. And they successfully transmit that from one generation to the next. Now, thank God for a lot of young people right here in this service. But, you know, statistically, we're, we're losing young people out of the church. I don't know if you knew this or not, if you read any of these things. There's a, there's a survey online called uh, The Great Opportunity, greatopportunity.org. They are predicting that in the next 30 years, we will lose 40 million Gen Z people from the church. Right now, we're losing 60 to 95% of young people that grow up in the church are leaving the church when they come into their adult life. How many know that is not a good statistic? That does not bode well for discipling a nation. You're not going to disciple a nation with the gospel of Jesus if you've got a vast majority of young people that are, are going out of the church. So we're going to have to change that. We're going to have to impact generations. We're going to have to start thinking generationally. Uh, I'm told that, again, with Islam, there are probably five European nations that will be Islamic within 25 years. Now, how are they doing that? They're not planting mosques. They're simply planting families. They're planting families. They're multiplying their families generationally. And they are successfully transmitting vision, values, and mission from one generation to the next, to the next. And so what will happen when they have an overwhelming population, more than the European population, 
they will take over the government and they will put Islamic people in the positions of power in, in, uh, in the government and uh, in the education system and in the film industry and everything else. And so I believe that we are called to be those people. Uh, how many know that it's not just pastors, missionaries, and evangelists that have a calling? Every person has a calling. I mean, God put you on planet Earth to fulfill a destiny. Do you believe that? And, and there's only 3% of the population that will be pastors, evangelists, missionaries. Everybody else are going to be doing all kinds of other things. So we need godly people in every sphere of influence, in every area of influence, to get a vision to realize, I'm supposed to impact this sphere of culture with the vision God has given me. Now, another group that's really successful at doing this is Jewish people. Jewish people are really good at transmitting vision and values from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. And if you were to uh, honestly look at statistics in the United States, Jewish people only comprise 3% of our population. There are 6 million Jewish people, 300 million in the United States population. And yet, these people are the top influencers in much of society. Uh, 25% of all Nobel Prize winners are Jewish in the United States, 30% in science. Top doctors, commonly Jewish. Top lawyers, commonly Jewish. Top bankers, commonly Jewish. You know, the, the, if you go and look at uh, the credits at the end of primetime television shows, if you watch on any evening on virtually any channel, you know what you're going to see who the scriptwriters are, the producers are? You're going to see a lot of Jewish names. Jewish people own a lot of the movie studios. I mean, just think of this. Who's the most, who's the most famous producer-director you've ever heard of in films? Spielberg, Jewish man. Who's the most famous scientist you ever heard of? Einstein, Jewish man. Uh, you know, it, it goes on and on and on. So why? What are these guys doing? I mean, we read in the Bible, it says here that we have a better covenant than they do in Hebrews. Am I right? So why would we not have better statistics? Why would our statistics not be better than theirs? And, and they're not. Why not? I was asking God that question. And, and a lot of Jewish people I've met, they're actually atheists. A lot of them, they go to synagogue maybe twice a year, three times a year on the high holidays. That's it. They're not ardent followers of Judaism. They're not people who are, are walking in Torah, who are going regularly to synagogue. A lot of them are atheists or agnostics. And yet, they prosper from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. I was asking God, what is the deal with that? And what I realized is, Jewish people do some things that most Christians don't do. They have some traditions in their families that most Christians don't have. And uh, what I realized that, that Jewish people know how to do that is effective at transmitting vision, values, and mission from one generation to the next, they know how to impart blessing to their family. They know how to impart vision, values, and mission, impartation of blessing to their family in ways that most Christian families don't. And the amazing thing is they don't study about it. They don't have classes about it. They don't write books about it. They just do it. It's just stuff that's in their culture that they just do that's natural. Let me just give you a real simple example. In our culture, when does a boy become a man? 
Is it 18? Is it 21? Is it when he joins the army? When he gets out of the army? When he marries? When he fathers a child? When he gets a job? When is it? And you see the point I'm driving at. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. So when am I really a man? If I'm female, when am I really a woman? Well, nobody knows. So there's a transition that happens during teenage years, right? Like you go from being this little girl to all of a sudden you're supposed to be this woman. And you've gone from being this little boy to all of a sudden you're supposed to be this man. But when am I really a man? Now, when is somebody going to acknowledge that? And we have no acknowledgement in our society. So what do people do? They try to release themselves into their own manhood or their own womanhood. Well, what are ways that people do that? Insecure men try to become bodybuilders, you know, and I want to be strong and, and, and beat people up and prove I'm a man. Other men think, well, if I sexually conquer women, I will prove that I'm a man because little boys don't do that. No, in reality, those are insecure little boys living on the inside of a man suit. Men are secure. They're at peace. I know I'm a man. I know I'm a woman. Uh, women sometimes, you know, try to attract some incredible guy to be interested in them to prove to themselves I'm beautiful. You know, see, I'm attractive. People want me. And uh, again, that's coming out of insecurity in the heart because we have no way to release boys to be men and girls to be women in our society. Now, here's an amazing thing. Do you know that every primitive culture of the world has a rite of passage? You go to tribal cultures in Africa, you go to tribal cultures in South America, you go to tribal cultures in Micronesia, Polynesia, Asia, anywhere, and what you find is people have a rite of passage and they have a ceremony, a declaration, and a proclamation that releases boys to be men and girls to be women. Now, let me, let me just give you an example. Is anybody married here? You guys are married, right? Are you sure? Is that your husband? Are you sure that's your husband? Huh? You're absolutely, you're very sure. How do you know? How do you know? Let me ask you this. How do you know you're married? Say that again. Oh, we had a wedding. And then I got a ring. And then we signed some papers. We had a wedding. It was a ceremony. I had a token that I wear to this day that, that tells me that I'm married. And I, I signed some papers, and there were witnesses, and I bet you there was a public proclamation. Like, there was a pastor or an official, and at some point uh, on that day, he said, by the authority vested in me by the state of California and as a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, I now proclaim you husband and wife. Da, 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 da. And you went out, right? Okay, and from that day, it was like... The door to single life was closed, and the door to married life opened up. And that very first day, you went, and I'll bet you, you did not say, uh, this is my girlfriend. You said, no, this is my wife. From the first day, right? And if somebody comes and says, is that your husband? See, I said, is that your husband? And she didn't go, well, let me think about that. You know, I'll let, you know. Let me consider that. I, well, maybe. I, she said, yes. And see, she laughed. And the reason she laughed is it's like, 
What a stupid question is that? You know, I mean, like, I said we're married. What do you, what do you mean? Of course it was my husband. So what I'm telling you is there is 100% confidence in her heart. Now, if I ask two couples that are living together and never been married, is that your husband? They could not answer that. Am I right? I said, is that your husband? She'd go, well, sort of. Well, what do you mean, sort of? Is it your husband or not your husband? Well, we've been living together for three years. Now, I'm not asking how long you live together. I want to know, is that your husband? Well, you know, I hope he doesn't leave me. Well, I'm not asking you that. Is that your husband? Well, you know, we got a kid together. No, I'm not asking you any of that. I want to know, is that your husband? Do you understand what I'm saying? There's no confidence. It's not settled. Maybe, maybe not. Hope so. Maybe one day we'll get married. I, I don't know. But see, she didn't do that. He didn't do that. Are you married? Yeah. How do you know? There was a public proclamation. There was a ceremony. Everybody knows. What I'm telling you is, I believe God intended that absolutely for every person on planet Earth, the same kind of thing for a release into manhood and womanhood. And when we don't have it, it creates confusion. As a matter of fact, people are so confused today, not only do they not know whether they're a, a girl or a woman, they don't know whether they're a girl or a boy anymore. Or a tree. Whatever craziness that people are, you know, struggling with. Here's an amazing thing. You have virtually no gender confusion in cultures that have a rite of passage. It's unheard of. It doesn't happen. What cultures have that problem? The cultures that have no impartation of blessing from parents into the hearts of sons, the hearts of daughters that release them into manhood, release them into womanhood. And what I'm telling you is, this is something that God intended for everybody. This is something you should not be able to grow up in a church without having a ceremony like that. I'm, I'm telling you right now, you can't grow up in a synagogue without having a ceremony like that. See, if you were to talk to... Uh, if you were to talk to young people in Jesus' day, and you'd say to a young fella, are you a man? He'd go, yep, just like, you know, they did. Yep. How do you know? Had a ceremony last year. There was a proclamation. There was a declaration. My father declared, the rabbi declared, it's settled, it's sealed, it's done. Nobody can take it from me. See, if I were to tell them, you know, the pastor that married you, he wasn't actually authorized that day. His credentials had expired, and so he wasn't really a pastor, and so he didn't really have authority to marry you, so you're not really married. You know what they'd say? They'd laugh in my face and go, sorry, too late. We're married, and nobody will take that from us. Nobody can take that out of our hearts. It's a sealed issue. It's a settled issue. It's done. God intended that for manhood and womanhood the same way. So if you ask another young guy in Jesus' day, you know, 2,000 years ago, are you a man? He'd go, nope. Why not? My ceremony isn't until next year. Oh, well, it's clear. Everybody knows that. There's a release into manhood, release into womanhood, and something that God intended for everybody. We don't do that, but we could restore that. We could have that restored. I've been talking to Pastor Ken about that in this church, and he's committed to saying, yes, let's restore a culture of blessing. Let's put that back in the church. So, you know, let me just ask you guys this. How many people here in this congregation, in this group, sometime during teenage years, you had a powerful impartation of blessing from your father where there was a proclamation, you're not a little girl anymore, you're a woman, and you're not a little boy anymore, you're a man. It happened and it changed something inside you. Raise your hand if you had that happen. One, 
one. That we have one. So would you say that that's sort of been stolen out of our culture? It's not normal. And we got people here from different cultures, am I right? So it's not in any of our cultures. It's, it's just not, we don't do that. But here's my vision. I want to come back to this church like 10 years from now. Probably have to be longer than that. Let's say 20 years from now. Fill this place up with your kids. Ask the same question. And like 90% of the hands would go up and they go, of course we had a ceremony like that. We're Christians. Isn't that what everybody does? Isn't that normal? Isn't that just what happens in every church? Why would you ask a dumb question like that? That's the vision. We can change that for the future generations. Now, what's the consequence of this stuff? I'm telling you what it is. It creates insecurity in people's hearts. And, uh, I mean, here's a very simple thing. When you get married, pardon me, let's say this. When you get born, when you're born, the doctor cuts the physical umbilical cord and you're released into your own separate identity as, as a, a little child. Before that, you were in your mother's womb and you were like a part of her body. And now all of a sudden, you know, I mean, everything happened for you automatically. Like nobody needed to feed you or anything. It just happens, you know, through the umbilical cord. Now you, you get born and this cord is cut and it's like, ooh, who's going to feed me now? You know, I, and now I'm this separate entity and uh, am I going to be okay? And yeah, God put a mom there. You're going to be okay. She takes care of you. All is well. But... There's an emotional umbilical cord that still ties you to your mother. And you feel like your mommy's little girl or your mommy's little boy. When does that get cut? In our culture, it doesn't. It doesn't. Now, God's intention was sometime during teenage years, there would be a powerful ceremony where there would be an impartation of blessing from a father that cuts that emotional umbilical cord with a mother and releases you into your adult identity as a man, as a woman. When that never happens, there are many people who retain the feeling of being a dumb little kid on into adulthood, and it does not go away with any age. People keep waiting like, well, you know, surely when I'm 30, I'm going to feel like an adult doesn't change 40 50 60 i said this in one congregation a guy sitting right in the front row he goes brother brother that feeling that doesn't go away at 83 and that was his age he was 83 years old and he said i can identify with what you're saying it still is in my heart i look i'm in a i'm a great grandfather i look in a mirror i know i'm not a dumb little kid but the feeling has never left it's just an insecurity and I don't like it. I certainly don't talk about it or tell anybody because it's sort of embarrassing. But if I were honest, yeah, it's there. And uh, I realized that is the consequence of a lack of impartation of blessing from fathers in, a, in our current culture. Here's an amazing thing. I don't know if you ever saw this. A mother can't do it. A mother cannot release a boy to be a man. A mother cannot release a girl to be a woman. Only a father can do that. Mothers and fathers have totally different roles in blessing their children. A mother's role is to focus the child inward. She has two roles, to give birth and nurture. A father has two totally different roles, which is to focus the child outward. And a father's role is to establish gender identity and release in destiny. So even if you look in a congregation at how people hold babies, have you ever noticed? How do mothers hold babies? Always inward, right? Always looking in the face. Oh, sweet little baby. Oh, I love you. You're so sweet. 
How do fathers hold babies? On the palm of their hand, like facing outward, going, look, this is my son. You know, my son. Oh, oh, look, Uncle Johnny, Uncle Johnny, look over there. Oh, fire truck, fire truck, oh, airplane, look up there. Dad is showing the baby everything out there and everybody out there, the baby. Mom could care less about anybody out there. So mom's role is to nurture. She blesses with an inward nurture focus. Father blesses with a release outward. And so, for example, a medical doctor told me this. This is really interesting. When a child gets ready to transition from crawling to walking, child needs to have an inner ear balance system developed. Needs the fluid in the inner, inner ear stimulated to get the balance system to transition from crawling to walking. So God did this amazing thing. He gave children dads. And around about six, seven, eight months old, dads in every culture do this weird thing. You know what they do? They want to throw the baby in the air. Dads do this to you. Mom's going, what are you doing? Stop that. You're going to drop him on his head. He's going to be brain damaged. And dad goes, no, he likes it. Why? They do it in Africa. They do it in Asia. They do it in South America. They do it in North America. Everywhere I've ever been. I went, who went around the world and taught all these people to do this? God, apparently. I've never, I've got to tell you this. I've traveled to a lot of nations. I have never one time seen a mom do that. Not one time, ever. It's not in their heart. They don't do it. And if grandpa comes, it gets worse. They play, play catch with the baby. Grandma and mom, stop, what are you doing? See, so if people only had moms, you probably wouldn't walk till you're two years old. And if you only had dads, there'd probably be a lot more brain-damaged babies. So God was real smart. He gave us moms and dads because they have totally different roles. And, you know, Riding a bike when you're five years old. Dad wants to put you on a bike. You're going to fall over on a pavement, skin your knee, start crying. Mom comes out, oh, what happened? Oh, it's going to be okay. And dad says, get back on that bike. So what would happen if you only had moms? Nobody would ever learn to ride a bike. What would happen if you only had dads? Well, probably have a lot of people with a lot more skin grafts and stuff like that. Same thing. 13 years old, dad says, send the kid on a mission trip to India. Mom goes, no, she'll be killed. So what would what happen if uh, we only had moms? Probably wouldn't have any missionaries anywhere. What would happen if we only had dads? Well, we might have a lot more people killed prematurely. <laughs> so God gave us dads and moms. So would he, you know, he could accomplish his purpose. But here's an interesting thing. I was looking at divorce statistics one time relative to the age of kids. It's a bell curve, you know, like most statistics. Where do you think the peak of the bell is? Where is the most common time relative to the age of children that a divorce would occur? And it turns out right before the age of puberty of the firstborn child. Why is that? Strategy of the enemy is remove that dad from the house so he cannot bless and release that child into adult destiny and, and identity. Remove the dad. That's a, that's a strategy, if I've ever seen one, demonic strategy. And, uh, you know, I know some people, you're running the, the numbers right now and thinking, uh, yeah, what happened in my family when divorce occurred? When was it? Yeah, chances are similar time happens for a lot of people. Now, here's an interesting one. When parents get divorced when the kids are little, 
Who do kids usually live with? Dad or mom? Mom usually. Then this weird thing happens when the kid gets into teenage years, like 13, 14, 15. You know what that, that son or daughter inevitably says? I want to go live with dad. And mom goes, you've got to be kidding. Don't you know dad is this non-Christian, evil, alcoholic, horrible guy? Why would you gonna go, want to go live with him? You know why that is? Because the heart of that son or daughter knows my dad has something I need. What is it? A key to unlock the future. A key to release identity and destiny into the future. And, uh, and God just intended for that to be normal. God wants to restore that to our culture. Uh, here's a critical thing. One, one last thing I'll just uh, touch on. And that is God's intention was to impart his message of identity and destiny into our hearts from the time we're little kids. Do you know that every one of us asks two questions every single day of our lives? Whether you realize it or not, you ask these questions. It's just internal. You don't think about it. The questions are, who am I and why am I here? Who am I means am I valuable? Do I mean something? Am I loved? Is my life significant? Why am I here? Not why am I here at church today. Why am I on planet Earth? Like, is there a purpose? Am I supposed to do something? Is there a reason greater than just, uh, you know, taking up food, air, and water on the planet for 80 or 90 years? And the answer is, of course. But there's only two answers to those questions. God has an answer, Satan has an answer, and they're opposites. So when you ask the question, who am I and why am I here? Satan says, well, you shouldn't be here. You're a mistake. You don't belong. Nobody wants you. You're just a product of somebody's lust. Uh, your parents didn't want a child. Uh, you were born at the wrong time anyway. Uh, if you were born a girl, the devil says, your parents wanted a boy. If you were born a boy, the devil says, well, your parents wanted a girl. So you're the wrong gender. You're the wrong time. You're the wrong place. Nobody wanted you. You're a mistake. You're an accident. You don't belong. You shouldn't be here. And regarding destiny, you have no destiny. You'll never accomplish anything. You know, you... you even if you did have a destiny, you're so inept, you'd mess it up anyway. And uh, that's, that's the devil's message. God's message is the opposite. God's message is, I planned for you. I planned for you. Maybe your mother didn't. But God said, you know what? Your mother only carried you for nine months in her womb. I carried you for thousands of years in my spirit. And at just the right time, I put you on planet Earth, and I knew you'd be a girl. I knew you'd be a boy. I wasn't surprised. It wasn't like when you appeared in your mother's womb, God took a step back and went, wow, what are we going to do with him? No, God knew. He planned for thousands. Of, he put you on planet Earth at just the right time, knew what, what color hair you'd have, what color skin you'd have, how tall you'd be, what gender you'd be, knew everything about you. And he takes a look at you now and he goes, you're exactly who I want. Wow, you're beautiful. Like, I carry a picture of you in my wallet every day just so I can look at you. You're my daughter. You're my son. You're awesome. And do you have a destiny? God says, yeah. You're absolutely unique. you got experiences in your life nobody else has. you got people you got to reach nobody else will reach. There's things you're going to do nobody else is going to do. you got gifts nobody else has. And God says, you're absolutely qualified to accomplish your destiny. Nobody else is going to be the father to your children, just you. Nobody else is going to be able to be who you are to accomplish what God has called you to accomplish. You're absolutely unique. 
And you know, I realize that both God and the devil, they both use human agency to impart their message. They don't impart directly. And it was so important to God that you would get his message at critical times in life that God put some very special agents on this planet to make sure that you'd receive his message, especially at vulnerable times in your life. And those agents that God put, whose specific job is to ensure that you receive God's message, they're not called pastors. They're not called teachers. They're not called angels. They are called parents. That's the job of dad and mom. Is to, is to protect the message, to make sure you get God's message. And God's message is very simple. I love you and you're extremely valuable. Satan's message is the opposite. I don't love you, nobody loves you, and you're worthless. So at any moment in time, we can receive either message. So when we look back at our own growing up years, how many realize our parents weren't perfect? Our parents sometimes probably imparted God's message, sometimes imparted Satan's message. There aren't any perfect parents. So none of us had parents that just imparted God's message all the time. All of us had parents who made mistakes, who wounded us, who abandoned us, who beat us, who yelled at us, who did who knows what, all kinds of stuff that God never intended. But here's the bottom line. You get to go back to the Lord and ask him, who am I? Who am I? You know, what, what I found, this, this was amazing, uh, probably 30 years ago I discovered in my life, God said this to me. He said, son, do you know that you go through your life and you just allow anybody and everybody impart to, to impart to you? And you don't filter those messages. You don't go to me and ask me the question. I said, God, what is the question? And the Lord said, the question is, who am I? Who am I? Because I guarantee you tomorrow, today, somebody, somewhere, maybe in traffic, will send you a signal that's not from God. Right? Like, read between the lines. You know? And uh, that's going to be a message that's not from God. You get a choice. Do I receive that message and react to it? Or do I go to God and ask for truth? Lord, what's the truth? Who do you say I am? Because here's the strategy of the enemy. His strategy is to impart to us his message in the depths of our hearts and get us to receive it without realizing it. And the messages that you get in your heart create images. And the images in your heart govern your life. You live out of the images in your heart. You don't live out of objective truth. I find people, all kinds of Christians, I go, do you believe God loves you? Oh, yeah, I believe God loves you. And I say to them, then explain this behavior. What are you doing this for? Because this behavior comes out of insecurity of somebody that doesn't believe God loves them. Well, why is that? Very simple. There's a disparity for all of us between our mind and our heart. We got images in our heart that were not from God, but yet our mind believes things that are from God. But it's not what's in your mind that governs your life. It's what's in your heart that governs your life. So it's a matter of going to the Lord and saying, God, I need you to bring truth to my heart. Jesus said in John 8, 32, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, how many know it's not truth in your mind that sets you free? It's truth in your heart that sets you free. I mean, for example, a mother that has trouble with anger, she yells and screams at her kids. You tell her, look, don't you realize yelling and screaming at your kids is number one, it's ungodly. Number two, it's sin. Number three, you're destroying your kids. 
She goes, yeah, I know that. Oh, good, you know that, so you're not going to do that anymore, right? Does that work? No, it doesn't work. Why? Because there's something in her heart compelling that behavior. And until that is removed, that is not going to change. And I'll just give you one, one, one last example, and then I want to pray for you. Uh, a man came to me one time, and he said this. He says, I really struggle with anger. He said, I've been married two years. When my wife and I get in an argument, he said, I get so angry, I want to punch her. And he said, I, I believe in my heart a man that would hit a woman is lower than the snake's belly. But he said, I believe one day I'm going to be that man. I'm afraid. So he said, all I can do is when, when we get in any kind of an, a little argument, he said, I just, I leave, I get up and leave the room. I just go outside and walk and walk and walk until I calm down. He said, the consequence of that is I've never finished a conversation with my wife about anything significant in the two years we've been married. Like, we can't talk about money at all. The moment we begin to talk about that, boom, I get angry. We never finish the conversation. He said, now I've got a one-year-old little boy. He said, inevitably, when I've got a real difficult day at work the next day, that little boy will wake up and cry in the middle of the night. He said, I just want to go in there and grab him and shake him and go, shut up. He said, I've never done it, but I'm afraid one day I will. So he said, again, I just go out and walk, walk, walk. He said, I never fall back asleep again. And, uh, you know, I'm tired and irritated at work all day the next day. And he said, God has called me to be an entrepreneur. I know that. God's called me into business, and part of my destiny is to fund the kingdom of God. He said, I've started several businesses in my adult life. Every last one of them has failed. He said, my wife and I got married two years ago. We thought God called us to start a restaurant. We started a restaurant. It's now out of business, and we owe the IRS over $100,000 in back taxes. He said, I don't know where God was. I mean, <laughs> I'm frustrated. I don't know why nothing works in my life. I don't know why I carry this anger. He said, this anger's affecting my work. It's affecting my relationships. He said, last week I was in a parking lot, you know, pulling out of the shopping mall, get into a stream of traffic. I thought there was enough room, and then I thought there wasn't, so I started, and I stopped. The guy behind me honked. He said, it so infuriated me. I got out of my car, went back there. The guy's window was halfway rolled up. I reached through the window, grabbed him by the shirt, pinned his face, you know, between the window and the roof, threatened to punch him, called him every four-letter word I could think of, slammed him back in the car and went back, sat down in my car. And as I drove away, he said, all the guilt and the shame hit me. He said, to make matters worse, I got about two blocks and I remembered a horrible fact. A week before that, my wife put a bumper sticker on our car that said, honk if you love Jesus. He said, do you think I ruined my testimony? I said, it might be. Might be, he said, can you help me? Can you help me? I said, I don't know. Let's pray. I prayed a real simple prayer. Lord Jesus, where did all this anger come from? You know, in about 30 seconds, he was in a memory. And I said, uh, what are you remembering? He said, that's nothing. It's just some stupid thing that happened 30 years ago. I said, well, we prayed and asked God, you know, to bring anything to your memory. So maybe it's from God. Why don't you share it? No, it's embarrassing. You know, he didn't want to. Finally, he did. He said, okay, here's what it was. He said, on my eighth birthday, he said, uh, my parents allowed me to have three of my best friends come over uh, to celebrate my birthday. So I looked forward to that day for a long time. And my friends came, and they brought presents, and my mom made my favorite meal, you know, and we, we played games, and 
stayed up real late and watched scary movies and did all the stuff eight-year-old little boys like to do and went to bed at two in the morning, two or three in the morning. He said, that was all great. But he said, when I woke up in the morning, I discovered a terrible thing had happened. I had wet the bed. He said, I had that problem in those days and nobody wanted to stop it more than me. But I, I couldn't. You know, I'd just fall asleep, and when i wake up, the bed would be wet, and I couldn't do anything about it. Well, it happened again that night. So I didn't want my friends to find out about that, so I hid the bedding. Unfortunately, my mom found it. She told my dad, and my dad decided that this would be a good day to discipline me. He said, I guess my dad thought if he humiliated me enough in front of my friends that maybe I would stop it. But, of course, the problem was I couldn't. Nobody wanted to stop it more than me. And so uh, he said, my dad, right at the breakfast table in front of my brothers and sisters and my three friends, exposed me and said, uh, called me a bedwetter, told everybody what had happened. He began to ridicule and shame and humiliate me. And uh, he said, you're nothing but a bedwetter. You'll always be a bedwetter. Better, bedwetters never prosper. You'll never amount to anything. And... Uh, he said, probably even when you're older and married, your wife's going to have to buy you a big diaper because you're nothing but a bedwetter. And uh, he shamed me and humiliated me. And then he said, if that wasn't enough, he pulled my pants down and gave me the hardest bare-bottom spanking I ever had in my life right in front of my three friends. He said, I was so humiliated, I just wanted to sink through the floor and die. And he said, I was so angry. I wanted to kill my dad. He said, if I would have had a gun that day, I would have killed him. But he said, you know, I was an eight-year-old little boy. What could I do? So, nothing. And He said, I lost those three friends. I never looked them in the eyes again. And uh, I was just worried to death about who at school they told, that everybody would know I was a bedwetter. So I didn't look at anybody. I, I didn't have any friends that year. My grades went down. I didn't do well, but he said, you know, that was 30 years ago. I forgave my dad years ago. I don't know why I'm even thinking about that today. And I realized why, because I realized his dad, I see, all parents are prophets. That was a prophetic word that was imparted into his heart on his eighth birthday, but the prophetic word did not come from God. It came from the pits of hell. That was Satan's image and vision. You're nothing. You're nobody. You're a bedwetter. You'll never prosper. Why is it that this guy starts businesses over and over and every one of them fail? Because he's got an image on the inside that says you're going to fail at everything you do. And see, your external life is going to be conformed to the image on the inside. Your destiny will never exceed the image you carry on the inside of yourself. And so that, that little boy, eight years old, he never went to God and said, let me check this identity message with you. Lord, what's the truth? Am I a bedwetter? Am I a no good, nothing, I'll never amount to anything? Is that the truth? He didn't do that. He was just an eight-year-old little boy, just received what his dad said. God imparted to him. He didn't know any different. He had never gone back to the Lord and said, Lord, what's the truth? So he'd never been set free. So that image was still in his heart. And see, he years ago said, I forgive my dad, but his heart had never forgiven his dad. His heart had locked that image on the inside. And every time something frustrating, something wouldn't go his way, it would trigger all that emotion on the inside. See? See? The reason you failed is you're a bedwetter. You'll never prosper. Not, see, your dad was right. That's who you are. Now, he didn't even remember the, the memory, but all the feeling was still locked on the inside of his heart. So I said, well, let's do this. Would you just speak to God how you felt that day? 
He said, all right, closed his eyes. We waited about 90 seconds. Nothing was happening. I thought, well, maybe he thought I just meant pray to God in your mind. I said, brother, just go ahead and speak right out loud. He opened his eyes. They were bloodshot and full of tears. And it was like a dam burst. And he went, I can't. And it was like 30 years of all this emotion that had been locked up on the inside of his heart came pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. And it was, he was weeping uncontrollably from deep inside. And anger and shame and bitterness and humiliation came pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and pouring out. After about 15 minutes, you know, you know, snot dripping down to the floor and after about 15 minutes, he <laughs> wipes his face and he says, I had no idea that was in there. I said, I bet you didn't. I said, see, what happened is the devil used your dad that day to impart a prophetic image into the depths of your heart. And it's been locked in there ever since and all the emotion with it. And every time there's a failure or a disappointment, you take all the emotion of that stuff it down in that jar and it gets locked away in that image. It just confirms the image that that's who you are. You're a failure. You'll never amount to anything. And... Uh, and that's in your heart. I said, did you ever go to the Lord and ask him for the truth? He said, no, that never dawned on me. I said, well, let's, let, let's do that right now. I said, do you know that Jesus was there that day? He saw what happened to you. He had all kinds of things he wanted to tell you, but you never ran to him. You never asked him. He said, that's true. I wasn't even a Christian. I didn't, I didn't know to do that. I said, well, let's just do that right now. So he said, Lord Jesus, what did you want to tell me that day? What was my dad supposed to say? What was it you wanted to impart to me? Immediately he starts weeping again. And he has this encounter with the resurrected living Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus begins speaking to him. And Jesus said, I never intended for that to happen to you. I never wanted that for you. That is not who you are. That's not the truth. He, he was just sort of reporting as this was going on. And he says to me, he says, I, I, Jesus is coming to me right now. He's taking that diaper off me. He said, I see myself as a 38-year-old adult wearing a diaper. Jesus is taking that diaper off. He's taking it, putting it on himself, and he's putting it on the cross. He's dying with my diaper on. He said, then he's clothing me in robes like a, or clothing like a royal prince. He's taking me to his father. And he's telling the father, Father, this is the one I told you about. This is the one I died for. This is the one I love so much. He said the father embraced me and said, I've been waiting for this day. I've been waiting for this day. I've been waiting to tell you the truth, son. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I love you. Wrapped his arms around that. You know, This guy's experiencing all this. is happening for him. And... Uh, as all that happens, the Lord removes this image. And uh, after it was all finished, I said, just close your eyes. How do you see yourself now? He went, that is amazing. He said, I, I see myself as a royal prince, a successful man. I said, that's what I thought. And uh, I said, see, your, your heart never forgave your dad, and bitterness locked that image into your heart for 30 years. And you didn't even know it was there because you forgot the experience but the image was there. Now you know the truth, and the truth has set you free. It happened in your heart. So uh, he said, well, that's amazing. I talked to him a week later, and he said, you won't believe what happened. I said, I bet I will. 
uh, he said, well, the anger's gone. He said, two nights ago, I had a little argument with my wife. And he said, uh, you know, I used to live at a level of, like on a scale of 1 to 10, I lived at a level of 7. So it wouldn't take me much to push that anger to 9 or 10. He said, we got a little disagreement. But he says, I couldn't find that anger. It, it, it wasn't there. Like, at most, it was a 1 or a 2. And it was easy to deal with and finish the conversation with my wife. First time in my married life. And then we came to a conclusion. He said it was wonderful. And then he said, uh, last night, my little son woke up in the middle of the night. And I went and uh, I told my wife, you just stay in bed. I'll take care of him. She goes, you're not going to hurt him, are you? He went, no, 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 no. I'm, a, I'm fine. So he goes in there. He said, I just picked up my son, rocked him, sang to him, put him back in the crib. He fell asleep in about three minutes. I went back to sleep. I had a good sleep. Real restful night. He said, first time my married life he said I can't find that anger six months later talked to him again he said yeah that anger's never returned but he said you know what we started a business my wife and I got another idea for another business it was a, actually a pool cleaning business and uh, I said how's it going he says we're in profit right now in six months our projection didn't show that we'd be in profit till about two years but we're in profit right now in six months I said that's wonderful what are you doing different than what you were doing before he went I don't know far as I know, I'm doing the same thing, but it just works now. I said, well, we both know. You know, when the image changes on the inside, everything on the outside changes. And because uh, the truth sets you free. And he said, yeah, probably so. Well, I talked to him a year later. How's the anger? Ever came back. How's your business? He said, you wouldn't believe it. It's growing like a weed. Just keeps growing and growing. We're doing real well. I talked to him three years later. How's the anger? Ever came back. How's your business? He said, we employ 100, I got 100 employees. He said, it's the biggest pool cleaning business in our city. He said, I'm finally fulfilling my destiny, channeling millions of dollars into the kingdom of God like I knew God had called me to do. That's a guy who's an influencer. That's a guy who's having an impact in his calling. What stopped him cursing from a father on his eighth birthday Stopped him for 30 years of his life. The reason I'm saying that is all of us have a choice. Whether we run to the Lord. And what God told me, he said, when I first got this, I realized I got to go to God about 100 times a day and go, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Because I'm going through life and people in airports and people in traffic and my own family members are conveying Satan's message. You're an idiot. You'll never amount to anything. And I got to go, God, what's the truth? God, what's the truth? God, what's the truth? Lord, who am I? Lord, who am I? I am not allowing that thing to get in my heart. I need to know the truth. I mean, okay, if I'm an idiot and you tell me, I'll believe it. But if somebody in traffic tells me, I'm going to ask you because I want to know. You know, if my wife gets mad at me and says some unkind thing, Lord, if, if what she's saying is right, I'll believe it if you tell me. But if you say, no, no, she's just angry and she's saying hurtful things, but that's not the truth. Okay, I'm going to receive the truth from you. So the point is, all of us, uh, you, you might have to a hundred times a day go, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Lord, what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? And then deal with the images from the past that are in your own heart. And, uh, you know, we, we've got seminars that do that. We have one called the Ticket to Freedom that we do online. 
And if you've got stuff like that in your heart that you know needs to be dealt with, I encourage you to go to our website, craighill.org. Sign up for one of the Ticket to Freedom uh, events that are coming up because we've got trained people who know how to help you process those images in the depths of your heart to remove them. We've got one coming up in February, one coming up in March, one coming up on Asian time in uh, January, but uh, you'd have to get up in the middle of the night to start at 2 in the morning, L.A. time, so you probably won't, don't, want, don't want to do that one. But, uh, but I encourage you, deal with the images in your heart. When you have kids, or if you have kids now, create a culture of blessing. Do like Jewish people. Jewish people every single week, they have dinner together, and they speak blessing over their kids. They tell their kids how awesome they are. They ask their kids to forgive them for the ways they hurt them that week. That's a culture of blessing. Plan to have a ceremony for your own kids. Release them into adult identity and destiny at manhood and womanhood at the time of puberty. If we do that, we're going to be the influencers in this nation. That's how you, that's how you disciple a nation. You've got to disciple a nation generationally through your kids, through your grandkids, but you've got to do that to retain their hearts. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for every single person here today. Thank you for my brothers and sisters, all the things that you're doing in their hearts. And Father, I pray that you'd identify the lies, the images that have gotten in our hearts that did not come from you. Lord, not because our parents were evil, but just because our parents didn't know. They didn't realize it. They didn't see it. But, Father, I pray that you would speak to us truth. Lord, that we would come to you and ask, who am I? Who am I? And, Lord, that you would answer that question for us. But Father, I pray for every man here. Lord, that you'd begin to touch the heart of your sons. Lord, that you confirm our identity as men. We're not little boys anymore. I proclaim over you this day if nobody else ever did it. I proclaim over you, you're not a little boy anymore. You're a man. You're a man of God. You're a man of wisdom, a man of integrity. And if nobody ever said it to you as a woman, women in here, I declare over you, you're not a little girl anymore. You are a woman. You're a woman of God. You're a woman of purity. You're a virtuous woman. You're a woman beloved to the Father. This day, I bless you. I bless you. And if there are issues in your heart still towards your dad or mom, I pray that there'd be a supernatural grace to forgive from the heart. Supernatural grace. If you need to, would you just speak that even right now? God, I forgive my dad. Lord, I forgive my mom for the things that were spoken, for the things that were done, things that he or she didn't even know would be hurtful to me. Father, I forgive. Lord, I forgive anybody else that the enemy used to impart lies to my heart. Uncles, grandparents, teachers. Lord, I forgive. And just take one second and would you just ask the Lord this question right now? Father God, who do you say I am today? Who am I? Who am I? What do I look like to you? What does my future look like? What do I mean to you?
let him speak to you. Can you hear his voice? Father, I pray for every one of my brothers and sisters that you'd continue speaking to them all day today. Lord, when they lie down to go to sleep at night, I pray for you when you lie down to go to sleep at night tonight, you would hear the voice of the Father telling you the truth of who you are. And tomorrow morning when you wake up and look in the mirror, maybe for the first time for some of us, you will see what God sees. You'll look in the mirror and you'll say, wow, God, you did an awesome job when you made me. Thank you. Thank you for who you made me to be. I'm so delighted to be me. Thank you, Father. Lord, would you do that for every one of us? So I pray blessing upon you. I bless your spirit. I bless your mind. I bless your emotions. I bless your physical health. I bless your relationships. I bless your family. I bless your intimate fellowship with God. I bless your work. I bless your finances. I bless your prayer life. I bless every area of your life in Jesus' name. Amen.